Hey reanimators, this is Stuart. Um, I am coming at you from the future. Well, the past. But it's 2022, and uh, as I mentioned in our last podcast, AJ and I are going to be absent for a little while, but I didn't want to leave you with nothing to listen to. So since we have this ridiculous number of podcasts in the bag, uh, dating back to 2013, (laughs) because we're damaged people, uh, I figured I could pull some out of the vault. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and give you this tasty treat today, which is our first podcast we ever did. Uh, I've chopped it down a little bit because we really didn't understand um, how much we could talk about this kind of stuff before. So here is Night of the Living Dead by George Romero that we recorded in May 2013. Just a couple of kids, really. Uh, Hope you like it and um, listen on for more. So this was George Romero's first feature film. And I was titillated to find out that his work prior to this had been on vignettes for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yes, yes. He was definitely, that was his his deal, which just tells you that people in public television are all zombie fans, right? <laughs> it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, so um, let's let's talk about the, the plot. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this film already, it's, it came out in 68, so too bad. Well, I think even if you hear this, you'll still want to go watch it. So it's true, all good. True. Um, so, so the gist of the story is that you have a bunch of people, well, a handful of people rather, that are trapped inside a farmhouse in Pennsylvania, and they've all been either driven there or were some of them actually residents there, Stuart? I, that was no. never clear. I think they all got driven there by a plague of the undead. So it's a survival story. And there's a few things that they hear about that they know that there are, there are murders going on. And there is somewhat of an idea that if they hold out long enough, they will be rescued. I feel like this is a theme in future George Romero films. Uh, like radio and TV are still working. Um, I feel like in modern, uh, more modern versions of, of zombie film and zombie media, uh, the complete collapse of society doesn't happen overnight um, for George, George Romero. There's definitely still newscasts. Um, they they do a whole interview segment in D.C. where it seems like business as usual. Right. And it's, again, yeah, you're right. It's later on when, when everything collapses in other zombie films, people are just cut off from all humanity and they have no idea what's going on. And in this case, they're definitely given information from the outside world even if it's not necessarily information that helps them but that's that's another story for another day well i don't know i feel like in a way if they had listened more carefully and and watched (laughs) the the tv there's this one tv segment that they basically talk about how they this this band of militia are essentially right down the road and they're gonna because they talk about willard a few times which is this nearby town that they're trying to get to uh, about halfway through the film and uh, this militia band is close to Willard and they're going to link up with the National Guard in Willard. And they're all so it's quite clear that there are organized groups of, of living humans with guns killing zombies uh, nearby. And I feel like one of the main arguments or you know, sources of tension in this film between the human survivors in, inside the, the, the farmhouse is should we be upstairs or should we be downstairs <laughs> in the basement? 
And essentially, if they had seen that broadcast and been like, oh, you know what? We've got this. Let's just go into the basement and hang out and wait till morning and we'll be fine. Well, right. But then there's also the question, do you actually believe what the broadcast is saying? Is it propaganda to keep people calm? That's a good point. And it's also pretty weird considering that uh, they basically it's all shot in the daylight and it's been nighttime for almost the entire film. True, as far as we could true. <laughs> so which makes us think that the, the first two characters we're introduced to, which are uh, brother and sister Johnny and Barbara, they have driven all the way out to rural Pennsylvania from Pittsburgh to put a wreath on their father's grave. And uh, they know nothing about any of any of the uh, events, which if it's already eight o'clock, which they mentioned at the beginning of the film, it's already eight o'clock at night by the time they get to the, the graveyard, but it's still light out. It's super light and, out, too. It's not even just yeah. like twilight. It's broad daylight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they have they talk a little bit about that, and they're like, "Oh, it's so nice that it's light out still." Uh, but they yes, that, that was a nice no that, that was a nice uh, daylight savings time factoid drop there. Yeah, and that's uh, also the scene with the uh, the famous line, "They're coming to get you, Barbara." Exactly, which gets referenced many times in many other films. So, but um, as far as I, I basically had not seen this film before. I watched it to talk about it today. I'm, I actually, I'm not sure if that's true. I've been told <laughs> by sources that I have seen this film before, but I had no recollection of it. Um, but as I was watching it, I couldn't help but think it was hugely comical <laughs> with the the first scene with Barbara and her physical acting, which is just amazing. Well, it's amazing because it's like, gosh, how how long does it take you to run away from a tottering man like he's not really moving that fast at all and yet he he kind of like yeah we should talk about uh the first zombie because i I started calling him the original zombie in my head as i watched it because he comes back over and over again he does come back he's sort of the the he is the the zombie that comes back repeatedly during the entire film uh so when we first see him he's off in the distance and he's kind of staggering around a little bit, just a tall guy in a ripped black suit. And um, after he starts attacking Barbara and Johnny, he gets very animated. The wrestling is like, these are two living limber dudes wrestling each other. Um, And I feel like the treatment of zombie movement definitely changes from the beginning of the film to the end. Would you agree? It does. And also the makeup. I mean, when you see him, it's just sort of like, what is this? just sort of a drunk guy. I don't really understand why he's so angry and wants to attack them. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. just really, it's a lot of like eyeliner under, under the eyes and things like that. And then it, and their movement changes. You're correct. Like, I think they get, it's, it's less easy to, to say that it's somebody just having a trouble walking and then it's, they're actually kind of jerky movements and things like that. And it seems like they're having a harder time with motor control, I think, later on. Yeah, because when Barbara, like, poor Johnny gets it pretty early, and Barbara runs into the car and locks the door, and the original zombie is there. And he's, like, spazzing out on the windows, uh, like, playing the drums, almost. Like, like he's playing the bongos. And uh, very animated. And picks up a brick and breaks a window, which, I mean... 
it's tough. It's uh, being more steeped in in modern zombie uh, media. That that was a tough thing to watch. Uh, but you just have to remind yourself, like this is basically the granddaddy of zombie films. Well, it's true, and I I had seen this a very long time ago, um, probably when I was a teenager. So I had to remind myself about these things. Like I was interested to watch it again. But while I was watching it, when he picked up the brick, I'm like, there's no way he'd be able to do that. <laughs> he has no motor control. Um, yes. And also that sort of, that implies thinking that he knows that the, the brick can, or the rock can break the glass. That's, yeah. that's strategy. That's not mindless brain eating behavior or brain seeking behavior, I guess. So, well, it, it was very much a, a, an untested medium, you know, like, George Romero was making a lot of this up as he went, I think. Well, he was. And, I mean, I think we should also mention that he they are never called zombies within this film. They are called, and even Romero doesn't refer to them as zombies for the most part. He calls them ghouls and, and other things. And so I think the term zombie got actually applied to them retroactively. Yeah. My, my favorite reference to them as not zombies is in the newscast when they call them assassins. Right. <laughs> the worst team of assassins you've ever seen. <laughs> Just yes, they, in their underwear in the yard. Exactly. <laughs> Just kind of hanging out. They're scared of light. Yeah. So. Um, but uh, to move on from, from uh, way too nimble original zombie, Barbara pulls the parking brake and like kind of rolls the car down the hill and immediately runs into a tree because... I think that's just what they did in horror movies back in the day. Yeah, she, her character out of everybody bothered me the most, definitely. And perhaps this is also because we're used to zombie films where, where women kick ass and aren't just kind of hanging out and freaking out and taking forever to run away. And But, you know, she was just insufferable. <laughs> She's one of three female characters, though, basically. And how would you measure her up against the other two? Uh, I don't know. It's so, or four, I should say. It is, four, it's so. true. It's so hard to pick which one is the most annoying for me. I tend to think Mrs. Cooper is kind of a badass. Mrs. Cooper is, but it's you just want the other people to join her, and it's sort of frustrating. Maybe part of the point of this film was to have these characters that were so helpless in the face of this to highlight that Mrs. Cooper was not, but I don't know. Well, compared to certainly compared to Barbara, she seems to be less of a, uh, you know, like a hysterical mess, but compared to Ben, all of them are just useless. Well, right. I guess that's what I was trying to say. It wasn't just about the women. It's actually about all characters except for Ben. <laughs> and I mean, maybe that is part of the point of zombie films. It's not necessarily about, the fact that the undead are trying to rip you apart. It's about the interactions between the remaining humans to stay alive. Yeah. And I think in any like calamitous situation, it's you're going to look to see who's doing the best in the face of it. And in this case, it's obviously our hero, um, which is Ben. I think he only gets called by his name once in the film. Right. And <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard to tell who he, what his name is most of the time. But he's just constantly being awesome and it's kind of tough he is being awesome and he also looks at a lot of the other characters like come on please step up just do the right thing i know you can do it so it's always it's almost always like he has to convince other people not to be stupid um so i feel for ben 
Definitely. Well, you know, it's worth noting that Ben is also an African American in a film that, uh, in a lead role in a, in a film that came out in 1968. And I think a lot of, there's a lot of subtext attributed to his presence in the film and what he does. And I'm going to go ahead and say that I don't necessarily think it's, it's all for real. I, I think in the film, he's the one, he's the one minority, he's the one black dude interacting with a bunch of white people in, in the farm country of Pennsylvania. And none of them ever mention his race. They don't. Um, while watching it, I was thinking just how Romero does this generally, but other people have done it as well, where the hero, the person that takes action in these sorts of films isn't who you would normally expect. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like the manager of a big box store or in this case, an African American. And it, as you mentioned, it's, it was pretty rare at this time for that to happen. Yeah. And rare enough for, for Roger Ebert to <laughs> refer to him in his review as the Negro, which is kind of hard to even it's hard consider. To, it's honestly hard to read the review because yeah. of that. And yeah, I actually think that I, I'm glad that he left it as it was because it makes it more clear what the temperature of, of the U.S. was at this time that he does use that word. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, other than as using that as a descriptor, he doesn't say anything else about whether or not that was strange. Um, he doesn't talk about the relationship between the, the races in the film. Just kind of he throws it out there that that's what he uses to to refer to Ben's character uh, to to the actor who plays Ben, uh, and that's about it. Well, he says that he yeah he he describes it. I guess you're right. Um, I read a little bit more into to Ben's role in the movie because within the movie he offs a lot of zombies, and all the zombies are white men and women, I guess, mm-hmm. and. You know, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there, I think that there is consequences for that that maybe the audience doesn't get. Well, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of subtext written in on Romero's behalf by a lot of critics. I mean, you look at the Village Voice article uh, review for this film, and they are they're convinced that it's all about the Vietnam War, um, and, and other reviewers are convinced that the scene where Karen Cooper uh kills her mom with a trowel it's some sort of weird electric complex you know <laughs> like daughters want to kill their moms and the whole cannibalism element to the film which was basically taboo before this film came out it, it's basically it's breaking down a lot of barriers but i'm not convinced that it's doing it consciously maybe but i think it was a very conscious decision to make an african-american the lead um and you see him do some stuff in his other films, too, that makes me think that that was quite deliberate. And that could be the case. I, and I, yeah, I don't know George Romero. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I'll just throw that out there right now. Um, but I think that in these days, when they made this film for just over $100,000, I don't know that they had that much of an agenda. That's, um, that could be true. And also, I mean, we, we discussed this offline, but... He he basically read the book I Am Legend right. and really loved that idea and wanted to figure out a way to do a movie 
and kind of but not quite rip off Matheson's book. Um, and we'll put right. the link for that in the show notes. I'm sure people know if they're into zombies and, and all things that they know what I Am Legend is. But um, he became very interested. Um, I Am Legend, for those who don't know, is the sort of survival tale of one man in a city. And it's vampires, not zombies. And they're all trying to basically convert him and get him. He's the last man on Earth. Right. And that was one of the things that, uh, again, I've read uh, interviews with Romero that piqued his interest about doing it from a different angle. I mean, he's described his project as a ripoff of I Am Legend, but he saw uh, one of the first film adaptations of, of that book, Last Man on Earth, which came out in 64, uh, to be followed by several more right. that we've obviously seen. Um, he saw that and was like, well, this is the end of the calamity that is, you know, the end of society based on a, a virus or, a, you know, a zombie plague or a, vi- a vampire plague in that case, what would happen at the beginning? And so that's kind of supposed, you know, supposedly that was one of the things he was shooting for um, with the script that he wrote for Night of the Living Dead. Right. And it's true. And I think that that whole origin tale, a lot of the times is what's most interesting to people. So you see that happening a lot. Like people want to know well, how did that all begin? How did the world end? Yeah, yeah. And and what did it look like uh, at various, you know, parts uh, and various chapters along uh, of that story? Right. And I think more of Romero's films deal with the, the various levels of destruction, levels of zombie uh, infestation as, as you watch more of his films. Sure. So anyway, what, going back to the, the plot of the, the film, basically... This group of people, these survivors, have to decide what they want to do, and they they argue a lot about what the best course of action is. And there are power struggles. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it, it, mostly it's uh, Barbara being insane, Ben oh, yeah. having Ben having to get everything done despite her and punching her in the face at one point. Well, she punched um, him first, so yeah, true. But she had a big old bruise on her face for the rest of the film. Uh, I don't know if you saw that. I did she see like, it. Yeah. She's got like finger. And they just don't talk about it. No, she, you know when she wakes up from being punched unconscious, they're they're just talking like normal. Like, hey, how you doing? You know, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Uh, however, so besides uh, placating Barbara, then Harry Cooper comes upstairs with Tom, who's probably the second most capable person on the cast. Yeah, I get on board with that one. But Harry Cooper is kind of a tool. Totally. And so, yeah, he's the the primary source of tension, I think, inside the farmhouse. Besides the zombies. Yeah, he's kind of like the last guy you'd want to be in this situation with. <laughs> so it's basically a, a real pushy, bossy coward, <laughs> as it becomes clear as the the film goes on. No, definitely, and it's you know, somebody that doesn't really want to take responsibility for making the decisions, but delights in tearing everybody down when they do. Yeah. And bumming cigarettes off his wife. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, they come up with a cockamamie plan to put gas in Ben's truck. Uh, and wow, of all <laughs> this plan just went I, awry. <laughs> it goes so badly. <laughs> You know, like, I hardly even saw it coming. I was just like, yeah, this could work. Oh, but then I did not foresee 
Tom not knowing how to work a gas pump. I mean, maybe they've changed a lot since the 60s, but I've never seen a gas pump just spew gasoline like this without, you know, any control over it coming out of the, the nozzle. Yeah, that was a disaster. I, I didn't really know exactly what happened there, but that just wasn't a good thing at all. He just pours gasoline all over the truck and all over a torch, which just happened to be there. Because, uh, yeah, another point that's really important to note, zombies are afraid of fire. In this particular film, yes, they are. And also afraid of headlights, because that was one of the first things they did to Ben's truck was smash his headlights. Again, it implies thinking and, yeah. and motor skills. So Yeah. But so Tom and Ben managed to light the truck on fire. Tom uh, jumps back inside the truck. You're also what, for, am I jumping you, ahead? Well, no, you're also forgetting about the girlfriend. Judy. Judy. Poor Judy. Who just wants to come along, which it doesn't make any sense, but okay. She just wants to be involved, you know? She wanted to help. Mm. Um, instead, she basically, no, she does the opposite of help. Um, because once Tom drives the burning truck 20 feet for no apparent reason, they have to get out of it because it's about to explode and Judy's coat gets cut, uh, stuck. Yes, and that's just not a good thing because the crowd of ghouls is approaching. Poor Tom tries to help. Truck explodes. And Ben basically fights his way back inside the house. Right. Um, but because the truck has ex- exploded, uh, the teenagers are definitely toast, literally. And that's one of the more graphic pieces of it, um, I think, in terms of special effects uh, with the, the zombies eating the intestines and things like that. Right. Apparently, one of the extras owned a chain of butcher shops, and so that was actual uh, pig intestines. Right. Um, so so this, this is not a good plan. This didn't work out. And then they're back into the farmhouse. Yeah, but this is also one of the uh, the first points of real contention beyond argument with Harry and Ben, because Harry basically doesn't let Ben back in. Right. And Ben has to kick the door down, which doesn't say much for the security of the farmhouse, right. the fact that he can just kick it down. And he did it pretty so quickly, too. It wasn't, it wasn't not, a very hard yeah. job. So Yeah, but then he gives, he gives Harry a, a real dirty look, but then Harry comes and helps him nail the door back up. And then... I feel like there was probably another 20, 30 minutes before anything else interesting happened. I think maybe the news report, they kind of all forget that Tom and Judy were ever there. They go on with their... Right, they get, o- they get over the deaths of Tom and Judy pretty quickly. Super fast. Because <laughs> then- uh, Tom and Judy were the local experts. They were the ones from the area uh, that Ben had already established that. Right. And then once they die, he's like, he's talking to the Coopers. He's like, so do you know where Willard is? <laughs> None of them are from there anymore because they just lost their two locals. Right. Uh, I was like, oh, that's that's a shame. You should have you should have asked that uh, probably Pri- Tom prior was. to the barbecue car incident. So, I think that the next probably big thing that happens is uh, the little girl. Um, well, it becomes clear that she's been bitten, right? And I think they're still not really. They talk about how she could be infected, but they don't really know what that means. Right, and it's kind of weird. They're very murky about it. You don't really know exactly what's going on with her. There, yeah, she just has a, a fever, basically. And there's some talk of taking her to a doctor and things like that, but it's not very clear that it's as dire as it is, but then she suddenly dies. 
I mean, actually, does she die on screen or is she just kind of lying there? Just kind of lying there. So it's yeah. not evident that that's what's happened, but she, I'm, I guess I am reading into it. She, I suspect she died and then she turns into a zombie. Yeah, but um, I think that's jumping ahead a little bit too, because also the second confrontation between Harry and Ben has to happen before that. Oh, because, you're right, right. Yeah, like and this this is crazy to me. I mean, Ben's already established himself as a person puncher. He's not afraid to punch people. No, but he somehow and, is not. Because <laughs> he actually, after after uh, Harry helps him nail the door back on um, right after the barbecue, he punches the crap out of Harry. Right. Uh He's, that's the second person he punches. So they've already established that he he's not a big fan of Harry. He punches him like five times in the face. True. Um, uh, and then after a spell, zombies start coming through the windows. They pick up like chair legs and they are, yeah, they're doing their tool using zombie stuff on the outside of the house. True. When Ben's trying to hold the, the door together, Harry grabs his rifle and is like, I'm going to the, to the basement. <laughs> And, you know, like threatening Ben with the rifle, which I don't really understand why that makes any sense. Of course, Ben, being awesome, throws a plank of wood at him, gets the gun back, and then shoots him. Yeah. And I'm thinking that was, okay, maybe it's a proportional response, but I'm not sure. Well, what I kind of thought about that was just that adrenaline was high and Ben was just fed up. (laughs) When you're fed up. You shoot a man during the middle of a zombie apocalypse. I don't know. I mean, yeah, The Walking Dead has taught us nothing, if not that. But <laughs> it was still seemed a little bit. I agree uh, with out you with, with with what led up to that. I didn't think that it made a ton of sense, but yeah. I also felt like maybe something was cut that we didn't see. Could be. Um, which, uh, for those of you who haven't watched this film, it's been recut and re-edited many, many, many times. <laughs> So, and honestly, that's a very interesting side of this film. The reason it's been it's had so many hands on it is that it basically falls under public domain because the publisher forgot to include the copyright notice after they changed the title from Night of the Flesh Eaters to Night of the Living Dead. Right, which must have been really tough on them when they realized this, <laughs> given what it became. Yeah, uh, I think they were probably pretty pissed. Um, but you know, for a hundred and hundred thousand dollar movie, they made something like twelve million domestically, thirty million internationally. They've just missed out on a lot of the uh, DVD sales, I guess. True. But this movie has legs still. So still, yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think that's pretty much. It, while it didn't do well critically out of the gate, it has stood up to the test of time. You know, considering what it is and, and the fact that it's definitely a cult film. But I digress. So after Harry gets shot, then basically Ben's in charge. In charge of a tiny... It's just him and Barbara again at that point, basically. Well, true. Or I guess Helen, Mrs. Cooper, is still upstairs for a short minute, but she goes downstairs pretty quick, too. She does, but basically he got rid of the competition or the the main person that was like arguing with him. Yeah, but I mean, the situation is so dire at that point. It's almost like the human-on-human... Stuff is not even really a consideration. Of course, he just shot a guy. You know, what do you think? But they're coming into the house, essentially. Like, they are... Right. Basically, everything's going to hell in a handbasket at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Helen is getting grabbed from outside. Barbara saves her, but then also is getting grabbed. 
and then Helen goes downstairs and finds uh, little Karen eating her dad's arm. And then uh, and she's yeah, pretty and is, she's pretty upset about that. <laughs> she is pretty upset. She falls down, and the weirdest and most disturbing sound effects happen that I've ever heard. And I, I would like to point out that the the mom does something that that often happens in zombie films. She tries to reason with the recently turned zombie, like she re- refuses to admit that this is no longer her daughter. Well, her daughter's holding a trowel, so I mean, I would almost agree with her. That yeah, she just had a bad dream, and I don't know. It's it's a little yeah, it's 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 not great, and it's definitely very um, psycho esque with the uh, the stabbing. Right, and then the stabbing happens, and there's just a lot of stabbing. A lot. Um, I would agree. I think that that's probably the most disturbing piece of the film overall. Would you agree on that? Yeah, I mean it's it's right up there with Dawn of the Dead, uh, little girl. Uh, Zombie attack at the beginning, 2004, uh, 2004 right. edition. And at some point we will talk about zombie kids because I find them to be some of the more disturbing zombies. But this is sort of the beginning of that kind of like. And it's right. It's right at the beginning of the genre right. to an extent. So, yeah. They, and maybe that's why it has legs. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. It definitely still stands up. Um, but yeah. So Helen gets stabbed a bunch of times. Uh, and then uh, I'm pretty sure in the interim, Barbara runs into her brother Johnny, who's no longer among the living. That is not and, a good reunion at all. And yet it's also very anticlimactic, because basically it looks like he gives her a hug, turns around, and walks out the door with her, and like that's the end of Barbara. I mean, do they show her death? No, I don't think in the one I saw they did, but there is, apparently there's others where she gets carried off. So I've read that, I've read that in other synopses, but I've definitely, in the version I saw, it was like, Oh yeah, just we're just gonna walk outside into this crowd of zombies, and then basically it's back to Ben uh, trying to you know fight for his life. Right, and maybe he's like Barbara. Fine, good riddance. <laughs> well, she she has been nothing but a pain in the she ass. Has. That's true. She has. Does Harry reanimate at this point, or did he already dispatch him? Yeah. Basically, once Ben realizes he's on his own and they're coming in, there's nothing he can do about it. He runs into the secured basement. Uh, draws some bolt and wait, yeah. The daughter comes upstairs and he he throws her around a little bit. Uh, then he closes the basement door and goes downstairs and shoots what's left of Harry and Helen a few times because they both open their eyes. Right. And then uh, that's kind of like that's kind of it because uh, he's obviously locked in the basement and upstairs there's like a zombie rave going on while they're like banging chair legs against the floor and and kind of just ambling around. And then you get to the quote-unquote rescue scene. And, yeah, this is contentious, obviously. Um, I've, I've seen people refer to uh, this group of people as a lynch mob, and I feel like that is also attributing... I think this, this follows your, your take on it, and I'll let you uh, describe what happens. Well, basically, Ben's been, been in the basement. He kind of hears these... Uh, people that are obviously not zombies moving around the house or in near the house and is like, Oh, I'm rescued. This is great. These are humans. This is fantastic. And they're, you know, they're kind of mopping up the zombies at this point and, and killing them and dispatching them. And, you know, he, he's not like, he doesn't, he doesn't come out to see them. He just kind of, 
looks out at them. And they don't really pause and they just shoot him. Um, and he shot right through the head. And that's it. That's basically the end of the movie. Which yeah, makes except for the credits. Well, the credits. The credits where they, they show them picking up his corpse with and, meat hooks. And, which is, uh, and throwing it on a, a bonfire, right? So Yeah, and, and uh, another Easter egg. The, the zombie that he's right next to on the uh, bonfire. The original zombie. Original zombie. Um, comes back for his final cameo. And I can see why people thought of it as a lynch mob, but I don't know. It, it apparently at the time that this this film came out, people were just shocked and upset and disturbed by the ending. <laughs> so, well, yeah, which I can absolutely see, and I can also see why people thought there was there was a subtext to this, given other things that were were going on in America at that time. I would say that. If I could be an apologist for the militia guys, Vince, I think, is the name of the dude who shoots him in the head. Uh, if I can be an apologist for Vince, he, Ben is walking really weird. Mm. He's like he's kind of haltingly. He's not waving his hands and saying, hey, I'm alive. Oh, my God, save me. Rescue me. He's not talking and he's kind of like stalking to the house a little bit. It's a little strange. Um, I agree. His His gait was a little questionable. Granted, you're spo- I guess we're supposed to think, oh, my God, he's been through so much. He, he's just come out of the basement and he's got PTSD and it was dark <laughs> down there. Who knows? But I, I think he well, it, it's definitely the onus is, is still on the militiamen. They should have said, hey, are you alive before they just shot the guy? They were under no they were in no threat. He was still inside the house. Well, true. But I think also they'd been if they'd been mopping up all the rest of the zombies, why would they have asked if he was walking around like that? It's shoot first, ask questions later, right? After reading Roger Ebert's review, which is it's a good review and it's an interesting one because he talks a lot about the audience's reaction to this film at the time. And, you know, there were other horror films that were released at this time. and They were usually pretty cheesy and. A little bit sci-fi, like Creature from the Black Lagoon or something like that. Um, And people would go and they'd have... I don't know if they'd actually be scared. It was maybe like a faux fear that they had. And when he is describing watching this and and watching the audience is that people were sort of like laughing and and screaming and having fun with it until it got to the point where the, the car got blown up. And then people are like, this is a very different kind of horror film. And I do think that this film denotes a shift from the normal cheesy Hollywood horror to something else. Would you yeah, agree? And I think it's definitely just carried from there, uh, the intensity. And but, Although that's kind of like just the inflation of, of horror and gore that we've all been subjected to <laughs> over the years. Well, it's true. And even when I was watching this... A lot of me was just like, really? You call that a zombie? You call that a death scene? <laughs> you know. Um, and part of it, I think, is because I have been desensitized just to, because of the level of violence and gore that happens now, um, just in your normal episode of Walking Dead. It's, it's just a very different time we live in for zombie films, I suppose. Yeah. And, and if, not only, if not just for horror and um, splatter films in general. But just the idea, I mean, I guess just moving back to what he was saying when he watched this with this audience, how people at the end were stunned and shocked and, and really just kind of terrified and quiet. 
not the boisterous yeah. crowd that greeted the beginning of the film. And it's just very interesting to to think about that because it does, I mean, to, to my eye, it just seems like a relatively tame film. Yeah. Well, he, he also describes uh, like a, a girl that he thinks might be nine years old because he's at a matinee. Right. Uh, sitting in her seat very still crying at the end of the film. <laughs> right. And then he goes on to talk about how kids shouldn't be at films like this. And the, what's in, what's kind of interesting historic from a historical perspective is that this predated and yet also kind of like leads up to the uh, imposition of MPAA ratings and how uh, <laughs> basically the, the government stepping in and saying who can see what. And um, this is something that Romero had to struggle with for his later films. I think Dawn of the Dead... I forget which 1971, I believe, originally got an X rating from the MPAA, not for sex, but just because of how violent it was. And he probably would have been faced with something similar to that if his movie had been made a couple years later. Well, that's true. And I mean, he does mention, you know, he is not saying that there should be censorship when he writes his review, but he does talk about how there's no nudity, which I spotted and I believe you also spotted, Stuart, that... There was, I believe, a naked female zombie running about. Yeah, because most of the zombies, for whatever reason, or a lot of them, are in their pajamas or various states of undress. Although there's a few, not, there's a few yeah. suited zombies too, though. So yeah, the original zombie being the most uh, the most prominent example. Right. But just the fact that this was this particular film, he was hor- Roger Ebert was horrified that children had been dropped off to watch this by themselves <laughs> without any protection. <laughs> Makes... well, I'm sure that nine-year-old girl grew up to be a perfectly well-adjusted uh, individual. Perhaps. But it just sort of shows you, well, how far zombie films have gotten, I think, at this point. Yeah. And I think what we, as we progress through uh, this podcast and talk about other films, um, we'll, we'll get to talk about a lot more about how that, that progression has scaled up over the years. Well, I, th- I think that's a good... Place to uh, to wrap up our discussion of Night of the Living Dead. What do you think? I agree with you. All right, cats and kids, there you have it. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, nineteen sixty-eight, by a couple of fresh-faced youngsters uh, reviewing that uh, for their first podcast ever. Oh, we're probably not going to be back for a new podcast for a couple weeks, so we might hear another blast from the past for our next week's edition. Stick around. Uh, There's plenty of stuff back there uh, that I can dust off. But we'll be back. Never fear. Uh, We'll be talking about Tales of the Walking Dead this summer and uh, Valley of the Dead and an interview with the vampire. And, oh, my gosh, there's so much coming down the pike. So uh, check in later. And uh, bye-bye.